0: Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 38, please. Psalm 38. The title of the message this morning is Sin always has consequences. Sin always has consequences. Sounds like a fun morning message, doesn't it? I was tempted to pass over Psalm 38 and find a more uplifting or encouraging psalm to preach from. We just I mentioned last week that we're kind of beginning to work through a few random psalms. And so we worked in Psalm 37 two weeks ago, and Psalm 30, or 36, and then 37, and then I came to Psalm 38, and I thought, well, let's keep going here, and we'll find another one that's a little more positive. But I was quite convicted about that thought. This is a difficult psalm to work through, and it's a bit of a hard theme to hear, but it contains a good reminder for us in this passage. A reminder that sin stalks every one of us, ready to destroy us. In the New King James Version, in the title, it says, a psalm of David to bring to remembrance. To bring what to remembrance? Well, it's to cause us to consider what? Or reflect upon what? It's to cause us to consider that sin is destructive. That sin bears consequence, always. Whether here and now or eternal, sin always carries a price tag. And though the New Testament does shed shed a slightly different light on sin, particularly in the life of a believer, it doesn't change the reality that sin bears devastating effects. Sin always has consequences. Psalm 38 is attributed to King David. You saw that in the introduction. We have no reason to doubt that he is the author. However, there isn't a lot that is specifically characteristic of David within it. This is also another one of the Psalms where no mention is made of a specific event or situation. We could look back and we could say, well, he was speaking about this, but it doesn't really tie clearly into it. And some of his Psalms, he definitely goes and he says, this is in regards to such and such an event or such and such a thing. We don't have that in this Psalm. We're all familiar, though, with David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the following murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. So we know David committed grievous sins and that he was confronted by them. And he was repentant of them. So this could fit that psalm. This is a penitential psalm, or a psalm of repentance. We also know that David experienced the consequences of that sin, instead of adultery, in the death of his child. So it is very plausible that is what David is writing about here. However, this psalm, speaking about sin and the consequences of it, it would appear that the consequences that David suffered in the psalm were to his own body, rather than the sickness and death of someone else. But regardless of what experience David is writing about, we can be confident that he very well knew the horror of sin committed and the consequences of those sins. And so it stands as a good reminder to us. And so we would do well to heed at the very beginning to bring to remembrance the psalm of David to bring to remembrance. Now, this psalm is not heavy on application, and that's a good thing. Often application is left as a work of the Holy Spirit that he must do in each individual, right? He's doing that in you, and I pray that this morning the Holy Spirit would drive home the truth of his word to your heart and show you exactly how you need to apply it. It's good that he doesn't bear application in this or that the preacher doesn't have to bear application in this because it removes me of the onus of prying into your lives and your secret sins, and judging them and trying to convict you of them, it also removes you of the onus of doing that to me. (laughs) That is the work that only God can do correctly. So I'm not, this morning, going to stress application as much as simply draw attention to the effects of sin and trust that the Holy Spirit will apply that to your hearts. Prayerfully, as we see the destruction that sin causes, we will guard ourselves against them, and we will flee to God for forgiveness. When we do fall to sin. In this passage, I've noted three consequences of sin. At least three areas affected by sin. Sin has a spiritual effect. Sin has a physical effect. And sin has a relational effect, according to Psalm 38. And at the end of it, we're going to see that there is only one remedy for sin. We're going to go a little bit into the New Testament for that. The remedy for sin is Jesus Christ. And we can praise him for that. Let's read Psalm 38. 38 This morning. A psalm of David to bring to remembrance. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure, for your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. For my loins are full of inflammation. There is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pants. My strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my relatives stand afar off. Those also who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction and plan deception all the day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear, and I am like a mute who does not open his mouth. Thus I am like a man who does not hear, and whose mouth is no response. For in you, O Lord, I hope. You will hear, O Lord my God. For I said, Hear me, lest they rejoice over me, lest when my foot slips they exalt themselves against me. For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin. But my enemies are vigorous, and they are strong, and those who hate me wrongfully have multiplied. Those who also render evil for good, they are my adversaries, because I follow what is good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Amen. There's a couple of things that I would like you to note before we jump into the areas that sin affects in this passage. The first is that this psalm is written to Israel. And although we are unique from Israel because we are under grace and not under law, we are still children of God. So this psalm is written to children of God. It is for followers of God. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ... As Lord and Savior, for the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, there is something in this psalm that applies to you. It is for you. But be careful that you do not take the specifics for the Jews and apply them specifically to you. Rather, take the principles that are laid out clearly here and apply them to yourself. The second thing that I would like you to note is that not all suffering is the result of sin, but all sin results in suffering. I'm going to say that again. It's a key truth here. Not all suffering is the result of sin, but all sin results in suffering. And I've spoken sufficiently about suffering in the life of a believer that you know what to expect. You know to expect suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. That isn't the kind of suffering that's being spoken of here in this passage. This psalm is speaking about suffering, the consequences of sin. We need to be very discerning here. Not all suffering is the result of sin, but all sin results in suffering. David clearly knows that what he is experiencing here is the consequence of sin. He is here wrestling with God both about the sin and the consequences of it. He is crying out to God to asking him to pour out grace and mercy. He has a repentant heart, he has sorrow and even anguish over the effect of sin. And you may have to wrestle with that subject whether your suffering is because of sin or because of persecution. But that is not where David is at, and that's not where we're going this morning. We're looking at the consequence of sin. David sees his sin. He knows his sin. He accepts responsibility for his sin, and so he he comes in brokenness and contrition. But he also comes in anguish because of the very real consequences of sin. It is so severe. So having said that, let's look at the consequences of sin as seen in Psalm 38. The first one is that sin has a spiritual effect. Sin has a spiritual effect. Look at the spiritual anguish that David is in. right? At the very beginning, "O oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure, for your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down." God has rebuked him, and God has chastened him. Now both of those words may be words that we're a little unfamiliar with. Rebuke well, it's the idea of correction, usually harsher or harsher correction. To rebuke is not just to say, "Please don't do that," or "That's inappropriate." To rebuke is to say, knock it off. That is wrong. And so David is under the rebuke of God. God has said, knock it off. That's wrong. He's convicted by that. Chasten has the idea of discipline and correction and even punishment. Strong's Concordance defines chasten as to chastise, <laughs> literally with blows or figuratively with words. So not a light rebuff, not a light reproof. Not a minor redirection here, but God's hand of discipline. Giving one to David, straightening him out. This is what God is doing in rebuking and in chastening David. And David asks God here to not rebuke him in wrath or in anger, to not chasten him in anger. And that's interesting. We have gotten so familiar and so comfortable with the grace of God and the goodness of God, and the long suffering of God in not dealing with or not dealing out the consequences immediately, that we have forgotten that God absolutely despises sin, that God absolutely hates sin, and he is, he is righteously angry with sin, and he pours out at times his wrath upon it. And consequently, God can be angry with sinners, and we can be under the wrath of God. God is just in pouring out His wrath and His anger. We have a grace-filled view, and it's, it's appropriate, it's proper to have a grace-filled view of God. But let us not forget how much God despises sin. Otherwise, we make license out of that grace. We take it to too, just too far, right? Our liberty in Christ becomes license to sin because we fail to fear God and to see that He hates sin. David here is pleading for God. He's asking Him, To pour out mercy rather than wrath. To pour out grace rather than anger. We see as well that David is under conviction of the Holy Spirit here. He says, and this just broadens the picture, right? He says, Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't chastise me or chasten me in your wrath. Because, God, I'm feeling the weight of what you were convicting of already. It's pierced me through. He says, your arrows, and he's speaking to God here. He says, your arrows pierce me deeply. And your hand presses me down. David has been cut to the very core of his being by the conviction and correction of God. And it isn't only an external force upon him, but David feels it is even internal. It is literally like the barbs of an arrow are buried within his chest and are cutting and lancing him with pain. That's how David describes it. On top of that, he also says that conviction of God is pressing down on me. It's like the hand of God. We all know how big the hand of God is, right? (laughs) Much, much bigger than we could ever imagine. It's pressing down upon him, he says. Have you ever been there? That's a rhetorical question. Have you ever been there? I know you have. At some point, every one of you and myself has sinned and has borne the consequence of sin. And likely, every one of you has sinned in such or to such a degree that you know this spiritual anguish, this conviction that cuts to your core and weighs upon you like a ton of bricks. I can't think of a picture that more aptly describes it than the one that David gives. Cut to our very core and crushed by this weight of guilt. And David is saying that it is God who is doing this. It is God who is rebuking him and chastening him and piercing him and pressing down on him. But he's not laying blame upon God for doing that. He's laying blame where it... Deserves to be laid on his sin. Sin is to, bl- to blame, and David is here blaming it for it. He's blaming his own sin. That is made abundantly clear in this passage. Even where he cries out against God and says, God, please don't do this, or please lift this, or please stop. He says in verse 3 that this is happening, but because of my sins. Verse 4, he says, it is for my iniquities. Verse 5 says, because of my foolishness. There is no doubt. There is no doubt where blame lies, and we know that as well, right? When we sin, we know where blame lies, and lies on us. David is not trying to transfer the blame or the guilt. David is crying out to God in that blame and in that guilt, and that's a good place to cry out to God from. When you fall, cry out to Him. David is crying out to God, accepting that guilt, and still pleading with God to be merciful. That is where we must come. We must see the the horrific damage that spiritually sin does to us, that it stirs up the wrath of God and calls for the rebuke and the chastening of God. It draws the correcting hand of God against the backside of the child of God in correction and in punishment, as it ought. And there is nothing that is pleasant about this conviction and correction of God because of our sin, even though it is necessary And I think it not only pains us, and we don't, we aren't the only one who experiences the hurt from it, but I think it pains God as well. Anyone who is a parent knows this to be true, don't you? That at times, if not more often than not, it hurts the parent to discipline the child far more than the discipline actually hurts the child. It's harder on the parent. It's harder on God, in that sense. If we can relate to that, and we can say, I know it's, It's going to hurt me more to discipline my child than it's going to hurt my child. And we look and we we compare that with our Heavenly Father, who is perfect and pure and righteous. Can we not see that his necessity of correcting his child pains him? And so we see the spiritual effect of sin. And if you can't see the spiritual effect of sin here in those words rebuke and chasten and arrows pierce me, and hand presses on me, then you can see it in the cross. For God to resolve sin and absolve the sinner, the perfect Lamb of God, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, had to, draw, had to die on that Roman cross. Sin has consequences. First, we see it in the spiritual effect. Sin has consequences. Secondly, we see it in the physical effect. Once again, there is no doubt here that David is suffering the consequences of sin. And here expressed in obvious physical anguish. Look at how he describes these. Remember, this is because of sin. This is the consequence of sin. But this is how he describes it. And I'll just read through a few things. He says, There's no soundness in my flesh. There's no health in my bones. My wounds are foul and festering. I am bowed down greatly. My loins are full of inflammation. I am feeble and severely broken. I am sighing. I have heart palpitations. I have no strength. The spark of life has fled from me. This is what he says. And he says, It's because of my own sin and God's judgment upon that sin. The consequences of my sin. That is severe. I don't know what kind of disease or sickness David had. But the results, because of sin, were dire. They covered every part of his body. It invaded every aspect of his health. And I don't think that David is just speaking figuratively here. There are some that have alluded to that or thought that. I don't think he's speaking figuratively. It is far too exhaustive and far too descriptive just to be figurative, just to be expressive. From the very marrow of his bones to the light of his eye, every part of David was sick. He is ailing and groaning and crying out to God in pain. Kind of reminds me of Job. When God gave Satan permission to attack Job, first it was by taking everything that he had, and second it was with his health, and God said, you can do anything you want to him, but spare his life. In Job chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores, from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. Can you picture that? That's anguish. That's pain. That's difficulty. And I... I see here in this description in Psalm 38 that same kind of pain, of sickness, of disease. And yet, in Job, it was God allowing Satan to attack Job. In Psalm 38, it is God pouring out the consequences of sin, which David has committed upon David himself. David brought it upon himself by his sin. Sin has physical consequences. We know that. We, we see that here. And it doesn't matter how lightly you want to take it. You can't talk it away. You can't make it disappear. Sin has physical consequences. We see that in the world around us as well, don't we? We know this to be true. Smoking destroys the lungs. Drinking destroys the liver. Gluttony leads to obesity and heart disease and diabetes and a whole litany of issues. Sexual immorality leads to, or lends to, at least sexually transmitted diseases. On and on the list can go. The tangible effect of sin... Now, you may have problems with your lungs or your liver or your weight, or you may suffer from a disease without having committed sin. But those exceptions don't deny the reality that sin has consequences in these areas. And at times, those consequences are the natural result of the sin, which makes sense. A plus B equals whatever that disease might be. We could see that, right? At times as well, it's not that it's just the natural result of sin. But that these consequences are from God. They are due to the correcting hand of God intervening in a divine way. But regardless, sin bears fruit. Sin brings sickness and disease and death, whether it's in itself or as an act of God in judgment upon sin. That is the reality, and it is good for us to recognize that reality. Sin has consequences. Don't just sit there, though, and bemoan your state. And David doesn't just sit there and bemoan his state. He does let us know how miserable he is and how how much pain he's in. But even in the midst of his horrific condition, David acknowledges that God sees and knows and ultimately is in control. And perhaps that is why, maybe even certainly that is why, God caused these elements to fall on David. God is here using this terrible brokenness of David to cause David to see his sinfulness and to repent and so be restored to God. And we know that experience ourselves as well, don't we? As I've said many times before, we don't tend to flee to God when life is roses. We tend to flee to God when everything is broken and destroyed. And if it takes the destroying of our health, to draw us from our sin into repentance and restoration, then it is very productive. It is very good. Even there, in the pouring out of the consequences of sins, God is miraculously good, isn't he? God is good. Sin always has consequence. First, we see that it has a spiritual effect. Secondly, we see it has a physical effect. And third, we see that it has a relational effect. The relational effect is seen on two fronts. The first front in verse 11, we see the effect of David's sin in his relationship or on his relationship with those he cares about. It says uh, his loved ones, his friends, and his relatives. And then the second effect, or the second relational effect we have, we see sporadically from verse 12 to 20, you see the the effect of David's sin and the consequences of it in sickness on David's enemies. So, first, sin has an effect on the relationships that you care about. Here's David's loved ones, his friends and his relatives. Uh, That word, relatives, could be better translated as neighbors, regardless of that context of people around him and, and near to him, dear to him. They distance themselves from David. We see that. They stand aloof. Specifically, it says that it is because of David's plague, or NIV says his wounds. That actually makes sense, doesn't it? The phrase, avoid it like the plague, that would apply here to David. He's saying, even my friends and my family, my relatives, my neighbors, they avoid me like the plague. Perhaps as well they are staying clear of David because of a sense that this man is under the judgment of God. They want to avoid that same judgment. It's as if, and literally, David is cursed by God because of his sin, and they know that. No one wants to go anywhere close to that. But regardless of whether it's because of his sickness physically or because of the sense of judgment or divine sentence that is against him, these most valued to David abandoned him. They kept away from him. They distanced themselves. And it wasn't just like they still cared for David, but they were protecting themselves. It goes deeper than that. It says they stood aloof. That is the idea of casting one aside, of of looking down upon someone. They were cold and unreceptive to David. They ignored his cries for help and his cries of pity. Perhaps they even disdained those cries. Does sin still have that effect today? Absolutely it does. You know it does because you've experienced it at some point, maybe abandonment by those that you care about when you've fallen into sin. You've experienced rejection. You've experienced that loneliness that sin causes, that breaking of relationships. perfectly you haven't experienced that too often or too harshly. Prayerfully as well, you haven't experienced that from the church, the body of believers who are likewise sinners who have fallen and been broken before, but you probably have. Sin breaks relationships. It brings separation. You also know that sin still affects relationships today because maybe the shoe's been on the other foot. You haven't been the sinning party, but someone else that you know and love has fallen into sin and, and and though you should be there to care for and to nurture that fallen sinner back to health and restoration, you've been tempted, and maybe even given into that temptation, to become aloof. You've been tempted to distance yourselves from them, and not in a healthy way of avoiding sin, but simply in an unhealthy way of avoiding the sinner. Whichever side you've been on, and honestly, we've probably, we've likely all been on both sides of that at one time or another. Sin breaks relationships. Sin has consequences. It has consequences, and it does in a relational sense as well. That's the relational effect on those that we care about. What about those who are our enemies? Now, they aren't our enemies because we have made them so, right? We, we don't go out and make enemies. They have chosen to be against us. They've made us their enemy. Well, look at David. He had some real enemies. These weren't just people who didn't like him and occasionally spoke poorly of him. These were people who were intent on dethroning him and destroying him and given the opportunity of killing him. What happens when a Christian falls into sin? The same thing that happened to David as far as the world, as far as enemies, anyways. His friends abandoned him, and his enemies pounce on his weakness. He says in verse 12, Those who seek my life lay snares for me. Can you imagine that? He's crippled up, he's diseased, he's sick, he's miserable. And in the midst of that, those who seek my life lay snares for me. Verse 16, they seek to exalt themselves Against David. Going back to verse 12, it says, They speak of destruction, and they plan deception all day long. Verse 19 says, David says, His enemies are vigorous, right now he's weak, but his enemies are vigorous, and they are strong, and those who hate me wrongfully have multiplied. That doesn't sound good, does it? When he is at his lowest, the enemies are at their strongest, and they keep multiplying. There's more of them coming out of the woodworks. The enemy doesn't step back. And give you breathing space when you fall. The enemy attacks. He gets in your face and taunts and derides and mocks you. He sends vocal opposition against you. We know that to be true today as well, don't we? How many stories, not just from your own life, because I'm sure you can think of a time, but how many stories have we heard where someone that perhaps is well-known has fallen into sin? And what does the world do when that happens? They mock they mock the believer, they mock the church. What does Satan do when that happens? They attack. They keep pouring blow after blow against the one who has already fallen. Sin has relational effect, and it isn't a good one. In the relationships we value, it can bring separation and rejection. In the relationships which are bad, it makes them worse. This is one of the consequences of sin. So sin always has consequence. It has a spiritual effect, a physical effect, and a relational effect, and none of them are good. It also has other effects, which are not spoken of in this passage. Those aren't good either. The reality is that sin has resulted in every form of depravity that we see in the world today. Sin has resulted in every sickness, disease, pain, suffering, every negative thing that you can think of came down from sin. But sin also has an eternal effect, which is not spoken of. It's not exhaustively here, it's alluded to here. It has an eternal effect. Sin brings death, and to those who do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior, it brings eternal death. That is eternal separation from God. Sin has consequences. Now, please don't despair. There is a remedy. And although the remedy may not immediately remove all the consequences of sin, it does remove them eternally. And it enables the child of God to rise up and to walk again in victory in the present as well. Look throughout this passage at the communication between David and God. It's interspersed here. Verse 9, David says, Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. So David has utmost confidence that even though he has sinned, God still hears him. God is still inclined toward him. Verse 15, For in you, O Lord, I hope, in the middle of this picture... In the middle of this scenario, and his sin and the sickness that followed it, he says, "O Lord, I hope in you, you will hear, O Lord, my God. David affirms that God hears him in his pitiful state, but he also affirms there that David's only hope is in that Lord, that God who hears. so we're heading in the right direction with David here. He says, "I know God hears, and I know that my only hope is in him, my only hope for forgiveness is in him, my only hope for restoration." is in him. My only hope for healing is in him. My only hope for victory is in him, not in myself. And then in verse 18, we have this prayer of contrition, of repentance. For I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin. That is a powerful statement. The very idea of repentance from sin or confession of sins begins with the acknowledging of our sin as sinful. I have done this and it is wrong. I have thought this, and it was wrong. I have said this, and it was wrong. And not just wrong, as in my facts were mixed up, but wrong, as in it was contrary to the holiness of God, and the righteousness of God, and the purity of God, and and what He has required of me. Sin is an affront against the very character of God, and it needs to be named and acknowledged as such. And so when He says, I will declare my iniquity, it would be good for us when we sin to find ourselves there. I will declare, I will acknowledge, I have done this. And it is a sin that God despises. With that acknowledgement of sin, there is remorse or contrition over it. There should be, there must be. It isn't just saying, yep, I did something contrary to God's desires. Oh, well, it is being broken by that sin. Broken by our rebellious and wicked heart, which has spurned the goodness and the glory of God and has chosen selfishness and pride and arrogance. David was in anguish over his sin. And when we look at the holiness and the beauty of God, it should cause us to acknowledge our sin and be in anguish over it as well. But thank God David isn't just left there and acknowledged sin and anguish over sin. He cries out in verse 21, Do not forsake me, O Lord. Do not be far from me. And we know that God has not forsaken His child. We know that God is not far from the one who trusts in His Son for salvation which is why David's final cry resounds so loudly with us. He says, make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. In the beginning part where he says, make haste to help me, it's not as important as, that, even though it's relatable, it's not as important as the latter part of that verse. O Lord, my salvation. The NIV says, come quickly to help me, my Lord and my Savior my Lord and my Savior. God is our Savior. And we who stand this side of the cross know that salvation was accomplished in Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can save us from our sins, both the power and the penalty, and even eventually the very presence of sin. And so we cry out, as David did, come quickly to help me, my Lord and my Savior. It is so beautiful to me that at the end of this mournful dirge, which is what this basically is, this is a song about how atrocious sin is. But at the end of it, we see his attention turn to a beautiful Savior. My Lord and my Savior. David sings about his sin. He sings about the effect of these sins, spiritually, physically, relationally. But he's able to end rejoicing in the salvation of God. We need to have an acute awareness of our sin, a a real grasp of our sin, and the sinfulness of it. We need to see it as an offense, the offense against the very character of God that it is. We need to see the devastation that it wrecks on everything it touches. Sin, sin destroys, sin alienates Sin eats us up. Sin results in death physically and eternally. But we have a great and glorious Redeemer who freely gave himself to die in our place, to buy us back from sin and restore us to right relationship with God. Our grasp of the horror of sin and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to pay for it should now prompt us to walk free from sin, fully pleasing to him. Turn to First John chapter 1 just wanted to wrap up with this thought. Because it isn't all just the doom and gloom of Old Testament anger of God against sin. He's angry against it in New Testament as well, just so you know. Verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, that is Jesus Christ, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the propitiation, the satisfying sacrifice, the atonement for our sin, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are holy and righteous and just. There is none like you. You alone are worthy of glory and honor and praise. We acknowledge that we have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God, not just in our sin nature, but today, yesterday, at times, we continue to sin, whether it is in a sin of Commission or omission, whether it's, as we would say, deliberate or inadvertent, we recognize that we do not meet the standard of your holiness. And we never can in and of ourselves. But we thank you that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross in our place. And now the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been applied to all those who have acknowledged you as Lord and Savior, who have trusted in you. So we do not stand in our righteousness, but we stand in your righteousness and as your righteous children by the blood of Jesus Christ, we thank you for your enablement to not continue in sin, that you by your Holy Spirit have empowered us to walk in victory, to live in victory. Lord, may we be quick to experience and may we be sensitive to experience the conviction of your Holy Spirit when we fall into sin, when we step into sin. May we be quick to see it as what it is and to to name it, to repent of it, to turn from it. May our hearts be broken over it, May we see your hand of salvation even there. That you raise us up. We thank you that you continue to be the advocate. The one who is the go-between. We thank you that you are able to be the advocate. Because you are wholly righteous. And without sin, without spot. Thank you. Thank you that you have taken my sin. And that even at this moment, Lord, you bear... You have borne my sin. May I see your holiness and may I see the horror of sin in such a clear way that I would flee to you for righteousness and so be able to live pleasing and walk pleasing of you and of of who you are and and as well in, in light of what you have done. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.